0: Where my people come? On. Where are my people? Where are my people? I guess I'll fly away now. Hey
1: everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. It is Monday. Yes, it is Monday, February sixth. 2023. Yes, we're into the February, everybody. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken on Out to Coop Live. We talk to progressives, activists and troublemakers of all sorts right from our own backyards from across the country. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup where we break down the good, the bad and the ugly in state and national politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast you can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month head on over to patreon.com rc press to become a patron today you can also help out the show head on over to our youtube channel if you're not there already smash that subscribe button like the stream for the show and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live you're looking for some more pa progressive talk tune into the rick smith shows live stream at 9 p.m eastern on his youtube channel twitter facebook wherever you get your streams and subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to the RickSmithShow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And if you haven't already, check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house, and they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at The Night Caucus, That's at The Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Nicolico, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist current streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner roots. Head on over to the Bucks County Beacon dot podbean.com for the latest and soon coming to every single podcasting platform you could possibly imagine and for all you gamers out there the game in is a quicker town based black family owned gaming store they're friends of the show they've got everything for retro n64s the latest consoles video games for all platforms collectibles action figures funko pops walls of funko pops and kids get discounts when they get A's in the report cards. Check them out on their Facebook page, follow them on Twitter at thegamein, that's two n's. If you've got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at Songadayman. Again, two N's at day on Twitter. And we cannot let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted PAC to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations rejecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at RagingChicken.LevelField.com. That's RagingChicken.LevelField.net. Well, on this week's show, I am totally psyched about this week's show, and it is right in kind of my lane right now as we're working up to a contract fight, from what I'm hearing, uh, with Abscuff coming right now. Tonight, I welcome Hannah Leffingwell to the show. We'll be talking about her recent article in the Chronicle of Higher Education called The Academic Career is Broken and the Need for Fundamental Change in Higher Education. In that, she argues, quote, we are in the midst of a crisis in academia, to be sure, but it's not an economic crisis. It's a crisis of faith. The question is not just whether our institutions pay faculty fairly, but whether any wage is worth the subservience and sacrifice that modern higher ed requires. No longer will hopeful stories about revision do the job, folks. <laughs> nope. We need a revolution, not a revision. Hannah is a writer, historian, and Ph.D. candidate at NYU, her dissertation in progress, "Becoming Lesbian: Sex, Politics, and Culture in Transatlantic Circulation, 1970 to 1998," chronicles the spread of lesbian culture in the United States and Europe in the wake of the women of women's liberation. Her research has been published in Gender and History, and her writing has been featured in Jacobin, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Public Seminar. Se- seminar Eurozine and Sinister Wisdom. I love that name, Sinister Wisdom. Mm. And her first chapter book, A Thirst for Salt, was published by Gazing Grain Press in 2018. You can follow her on Twitter at Han Leffingwell, at Han Leffingwell on Twitter. And you, the links for uh, her article, both in the Chronicle and, uh, and another one in Jacobin, uh, on the same topic, is posted in tonight's show notes. Welcome to the show, Hannah.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, uh, as we were talking a little bit before the show, I'm thrilled to have you on. Um, Just getting news that that we're probably headed towards a contract fight here in Pennsylvania in the state system of higher education. Um, We've seen a decimation of uh, the public higher education here in Pennsylvania, but that is not news (laughs) for across the country. And it's kind of part of the, uh, I guess, the environment we're all swimming in, um, as it were. Um, But Uh, More importantly, I think that in your articles, um, you go beyond that kind of crisis, right? The crisis of, you know, uh, we're seeing the downsizing, we're seeing the condensing, we're seeing the working conditions kind of um, Mm. becoming worse. We're seeing the kind of rapid intensification of contingency, all that kind of stuff. Um, But you want to look at something bigger. so. Before we dive right into your article, can you talk a little bit about just kind of what brought you to these issues? What got you to this point where you wanted to address these crises in academia you're talking about?
2: Yeah, Um, thanks for that question. I think I was really lucky. I went to Mount Holyoke College, Um, so I had the experience of a historically women's college, a small liberal arts college. Um, And... I did not peek behind the curtain while I was there. And I was a very happy um, student who was learning so much, doing all the readings, talking to all my professors. I wasn't harassed. I wasn't mistreated. And I had a wonderful time. And then I decided to go to graduate school because I thought I have a lot of ideas I want to look at, mostly in the realm of feminism and queer history. And so that was how my graduate school journey started and the recognition of these, these huge problems in the institutions um, came slowly and painfully through personal experience. Um, you know, a few years of really being so energized and so excited to be in graduate school at NYU and, um, you know, just going all in with the process and then kind of reaching these walls where things started to go wrong having to deal with Title IX and realizing they were not there to protect me, they are there to protect the institution from liability. Um, That was the first kind of moment when I thought, oh, something else is going on here. Um, And then as I started to teach, the Graduate Student Union at NYU went on strike. Um, So I learned a lot through that process about thinking of the work we were doing as labor instead of just the thing you do to put on your resume to succeed in the profession. Um, and COVID just broke things apart completely, um, which maybe we can talk about more later, but, um, you know, I started graduate school in 2015. I was in my first year of the PhD when Trump was elected and, um, in my fourth year when the pandemic hit. So anything I thought the experience would be it wasn't <laughs> um, and the stakes became very high very quickly yeah. on a national scale um, and the stakes yeah. of teaching of being an instructor were so high all of a sudden politically my students were and are in so much danger because of their identities um, and literally being it being worried that you're going to kill your student or that your student is going to kill you because of a virus you can't control um, so it, I think that that kind of political context really helps explain why I had that felt sense that there was something wrong with the way we were approaching this, that the stakes were much higher than maybe most people were talking about.
1: 100%, and I remember uh, going at our at our university when we, uh, I guess this was going into the fall of 2020, um, our, University president was insistent upon going back uh, in person, um, mm. said that what we needed was grit and fortitude like the, you know, and we're, you know, we have a lot of first generation college students at uh, at, at our universities. Mm. And, you know, it was the idea in using the 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 kind of identities of like working class factory workers, farm workers, um, people who have struggled their entire lives to discipline People who were asking questions were basically insisting that we either we have guaranteed precautions that were going in, or that we go online. He said, "No, what you need is grit and fortitude." It was, and again, this is just more. This is an anecdote from my university, but we saw mm-hmm. this kind of stuff, this struggle happening everywhere. And you know, the further you were down the economic chain, right, the more that your identity was already at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like you, it was everything was just ramped up at that point.
2: I think the experience of teaching remotely, I was teaching in the spring of 2020 as a TA, so I had to make the transition over spring break to Zoom, which I had never used. And I remember sitting in the conference room with the two professors I was working with, and one of them said, I think they're going to close school after spring break. And I said, they wouldn't do that. That's crazy, you know? And um, he said, well, we should probably start getting used to Zoom. And I thought, oh, you know, he's just, (laughs) scaremongering. And um, of course, we know what happened um, and had to very quickly switch to Zoom. That was a huge indicator of how important graduate student laborers were because we were taking on the bulk of that transition, making sure that students were getting one-on-one attention, making sure that the technology was working, serving, uh, doing all of these extra things that we weren't doing in the classroom in person. And I taught my own course that summer completely over Zoom. Um, And I had students who were in really nice houses, in nice bedrooms with good internet on their MacBooks. And I had students who were housing insecure, who were trying to figure out how they could work to support themselves, who did not have access to Wi-Fi, and who were really, really struggling. And it just became so obvious to me that the way we were... Um, trying to level out that privilege wasn't wasn't working. Um, even if you are on campus, even if you are in the dorms, um, it's not so easy as just putting somebody in a dorm and putting them in a class. Um, so I really started to worry for those those students and felt that I was taking on this role of kind of like a care worker in addition to being an educator. So it shifted my perception of, I think there's that idea that Professors are this kind of all-knowing separate entity, especially at somewhere like NYU, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Who have these incredible things to share with you, and they can't be bothered to really get to know you one-on-one, right? This is the the research university experience, not the liberal arts college experience. Um, (laughs) But I think there's a lot of reckoning with the fact that care work is required. The universities are not investing in care work the way they need to. We have huge mental health crises on campus, um, housing insecurity, food insecurity. And in addition, um, you have all these people who have received no training in how to teach or how to deal with people in crisis. So everything you learn is something you have to just find for yourself or learn by making mistakes. So I think when we talk about the crisis of the profession, it's not just that people are not being paid, that they're not receiving health care, that the jobs are insecure and uncertain. It's that we are fundamentally training people for the wrong thing. And we are setting them up for failure. And if not failure, certainly discomfort and the feeling that what they're doing is never enough, especially if they are marginalized people in the academy who are taking on all that extra work to support their students.
1: Yes. You talk about, you know, how we have how some of the narratives around like your luckiness to be able to do this work or your Mm. calling or your mission, this language that I think entices um, a lot of us, you know, into this profession and academics that. We are there for, you know, to do this work, to work with students, and we care. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also used as a stick in some ways to say that, well, what do you mean you're not available for your students over the weekend in the middle of COVID when they had bad internet connection during the week? Well, you need to be there for, available for them. Mm. Just try this little thing, right? If you, oh, here's a cool little app that will connect students with some mental health resources if they can't mm. get access to what we have at the counseling center. These little, like, whether it's a tech fix or that, that language of, like, Well, if you just do this one thing, right, Mm. but those one things are all stuff that we haven't been trained for, haven't thought of, didn't get us into this, and it certainly hasn't been part of the education, I think, you know, getting to where we are. Mm -hmm. So let me me ask you, so, you know, you frame this piece in the Chronicle, you know, obviously provocatively, right, Um, (laughs) posing some direct question. You you start with this, you know, the novel um, um, Babel, right, and you, you say coming out of that, there's three questions, right? One can it be saved, (laughs) number one, right? Two, can you change it from within, right? And three, is it ethical to work in these institutions? Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little about that framing and maybe even say like, okay, once, you know, once you kind of, burst the bubble of, uh, of this image around there. Like, I think you referred to this on Twitter today as like, tune in later today as I continue my quest to stop impressionable young people from getting PhDs. <laughs> right? Because that's essentially the discipline that comes with it, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think. So can you talk about that thing? And then walk us into that article a bit in terms mm-hmm. of what you wanted to do there.
2: What I wanted to do there. So I was asked if I could speak to the end of the strikes at the New School and University of California. And if I could kind of reflect on whether they were worth it, what had been gained. Um, And so I, I sat and I thought about that. And it seemed so minuscule, the actual outcome of the strikes. And this is as someone who is very much benefiting from the strike at the new school, right? So I'm not saying that it didn't hugely affect people's ability to make a living at all at the new school. Um, But when I was thinking about, oh, I could analyze these strikes and what they were able to gain through striking, I thought, well, but that's, that doesn't fix the problem. Right. And The fact that um, with both of these strikes, University of California and the new school, by no means are the part time faculty or graduate students coming out of it with a living wage or, you know, the kind of protections that they deserve. They're coming out of it with better than what they had. Um, So there's that side of things. But I think I really had to grapple with that question of, okay, how would this affect me personally if I continue in this profession? which is something I talked about more in the Jacobin piece. Um, the sacrifices that would be required for my family, the fact that most academic jobs require relocation. Um, it's very hard to, to get a job in the place where you already live. Um, it requires the postdocs and the visiting positions and the moving around as you try to finally get that dream job. Or maybe you don't get it ever, or maybe you don't get it until you're 50. Um, So I had the personal reckoning of deciding that was not worth it for me. There was too much going on in my life that I cared about to just uproot it and leave. Um, And then when I started to think about the big picture and the ethics of it, I started to feel like it was this, you know, snake of dominoes and I had pushed one down and they all fell down and I was just watching them fall because I realized I'm teaching queer history. I'm teaching the history of feminism. I'm teaching critical race theory. I'm teaching these ways of viewing the world that are so important to me and so important to my political perspective and my activism to share that ability to think critically with my students. And I am so moved every time I am in a classroom with them. And at the same time, I can't square the cognitive dissonance of teaching these things and being in an institution that is so rotten. Um, It just feels like it doesn't make sense to be teaching this radical history and these um, really complicated and beautiful ideas that have been passed down to me from all these wonderful scholars, but to be doing it in an environment where my students are being lied to. They're being lied to when they're told that the place you go to college is going to make your whole life one thing or another thing. Um, they're being lied to when they're told that uh, it's about how how good you are at studying or, you know, what you've deserved and what you haven't deserved. Um, so I don't know if that, if that answers your question about my questions, but um, it's just to say that there was kind of this ethical clusterfuck that came about as I started to untangle my own problems with the profession
1: no that that is wonderful and makes a hell of a lot of sense I mean I mean it resonates I think tremendously from you know I mean and again I'm in totally like position of privilege when it comes in terms of like higher education in terms of getting a unionized job right Mm -hmm. being able to kind of get tenure and kind of the job security as it goes up I mean not to mention being the white guy in an academy and an institution that's built that you know that's been built around you know this kind of inclusion for me exclusion for everybody else kind of thing Mm -hmm. so I mean all those those layers Um, and but coming into it as you know someone who grew up I grew up with food stamps. I grew up with a, a you know, in a single parent family after my, my sister had medical malpractice and became kind mm-hmm. of mentally disabled, right? I mean, you know, grew up in, in that context and always saw, you know, these hopes for these ideas. This is the way out, right? This yeah. is the way to get out of these kind of conditions that felt so kind of oppressive, out of the shame of poverty, out of the kind of like, mm. and deal with, you know, I always say like punk rock music saved my life is like, I was an angry, angry kid, that could have gone a really bad directions if mm. I just look at, you know, to the left and the right of me in my high school, for example. Um, and this was that pathway that kind of that uh, resonated. And then I see, you know, I chose to, you know, I had to make a choice at one point. OK, do I stay and teach in D.C., right, where I had, you know, uh, you know, I had been teaching there for a bit or do I take this position uh, which I, I knew was going to be, I'd never been to Pennsylvania, <laughs> like central Pennsylvania <laughs> before, or, or, you know, or you know, rural Pennsylvania, um, didn't know the town, but wanted to work with kids like I grew up with mm-hmm. and wanted to be in that situation where I had some protections um, from a union. But then to see that eroded and like, you know, watching on the one hand, the, the, the examples and people have listened to the show quite a bit. I've talked about this in the past, but you know, the very moment where we had a president coming into our university who was doing uh, was really doing, I think, a good job on recruiting kind of a diverse student body. Right. There had been it, our student body was not reflective of the demographics of the region and really kind of dove in and kind of like improve those things at the same time, cut all the services for those very students. Mm -hmm. right cut the kind of upward bound programs cut the tutorial programs cut the kind of the act of a counseling center and Mm. so you're it's like one of the on the one hand we have this kind of pr reflection of of say diversity on the other hand watching these students come in and struggling and then a lot of them dropping out with Mm. now they have a bunch of debt right yeah we had students you know recently saying like in order to be seen in the counseling center, I have to tell them that I'm about to take my life, even though mm. that's not true, but I just, I'm in crisis. I mean, that's the situation we produce all under the glow of the, you know, the PR, glossy PR front about what this is doing for students. And it's oh. just, what you mentioned is the dissonance is just incredible. Is that right yeah,
2: on? it's just, I mean, I'm somebody who had an experience of being in a place where I didn't feel. How do I put this? I I grew up in a very homogenous, white, um, middle class suburb, Um, conservative, evangelical. And my family, we were the only Democrats I knew. Um, And this was at a time when it was completely acceptable for people like my parents to say, oh, well, gay people shouldn't get married. Um, But I guess they could have civil unions, right? Meanwhile, everyone else around me is saying that, homosexuals are sinners and they're going to hell right? right so it was a it was a challenging environment and I didn't come out until college so I was in this kind of pressure cooker of whiteness and heteronormativity and um, I needed to get out and academia I mean my studies were were absolutely my way out um, and it's I'm, I'm so grateful for that right I can't just say oh you know, this is all a lie when it's also true that it changed my life for the better. It's just a matter of how far does it go before it starts to go in the other direction? It gets you certain places, right? Um, And then where where is it leading? You know, I I read this statistic a few days ago that 62% of Americans over the age of 25 don't have bachelor's degrees. Meanwhile, most jobs, yeah. most good paying jobs require a bachelor's degree. This makes me so angry <laughs> at every turn, um, in part because I think the people who come into this system, who come into college, who come into universities, and they're banging their head against the wall trying to succeed because they have different learning styles because they they would rather do something with their hands, because the material is racist, because they're being sexually harassed, whatever the reason is, because they're neurodiverse, because they're mentally ill, because they're disabled, they're coming into this environment and they're being told over and over again that they're just not trying hard enough. If they just tried a little harder, yeah. they could get the A's. And then if they got the A's, they could go to this prestigious law school. And then if they went there, they could make a million dollars, right? So, so many people get crushed under the weight of that promise. Um, And it, in some ways, doesn't matter what institution you're at. Now, there's some exceptions to that, but I would say you can find people in basically any institution who have been told it's going to change their life. And in fact, it's the same or worse than before they came in. So I think it's a matter of figuring out Not just how do we treat our workers equitably, because that's the question the whole country is grappling with um, in in every profession, right? That's capitalism. That's the neoliberal paradox. But I think if we're rethinking the role of the university, we have to really sit down and think, why are we doing this? What is it for? Because the conservatives are coming for us, you know?
1: This is exactly where I was going. I was like, you know, because right now there's a reason why. I mean, what you said before about how the content, right? The ideas, what is what is being grappled with? These, you know, I, I mean, I see a lot of a lot of faculty members are teaching what are kind of survival skills in many ways, how to actually extend and deepen the promise of, you know, whether it's everything from body autonomy to freedom to. a a future in which, I mean, again, I always think about this as, like, it's always a horizon, right? You know, Mm. there's not this finished project that, you know, that we just get to and everything's hunky-dory and everyone sings kumbaya. But what's always that active question about where, like, how do we get better, right? How do we become more equitable? How do we allow more people to thrive in whatever that may Mm. look like? And to be comfortable in that kind of dissonance and difference as we kind of move forward. I mean, if I'm, you know, using my high words now, but I mean, but, but that point about that kind of sense of hope of purpose is what so much I think has, has driven so many people to aca- academics. And there's a reason why it's those exact same knowledge that are under attack right now, why it's being mm-hmm. stripped out in K through 12 Why Ron DeSantis down in Florida is basically becoming the poster child for the 2024 presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the same time that it seems like these knowledges and the, this work is more important is the very time in which the conditions under which we're able to kind of have those conversations and engage in that work is just, mm-hmm. is, is, is evaporating. It's becoming about like, what, what do you mean? You don't have the will? You don't have the will to work mm-hmm. harder? What's the problem?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, so my wife is a, a lower school educator. So she teaches K through three. So she's all the way on the other side of the spectrum, right? I have them at the end. She has them at the beginning. Um, We have a lot of really rich conversations about this because I think part of the problem with higher education is that separation, that superiority, and that, um, that sense that we're different from educators at the lower levels, right? And that hurts us and it hurts them. And we cannot fix higher education if we don't fix primary and secondary education. We just can't mm-hmm. because these these students are, I mean, how do you even describe our system of public education and private education in this country? It's, uh, uh, I don't even Scatter have words for best. it. I mean, it's a disaster. Yeah. And if the purpose of public schooling- It is the market, right? It right. is the market. Right, and if if the point of public schooling- you know, if we're going back to, I'm a French historian, so if we're going back to the origins of the public education system in France, the idea was you want to create citizens who know um, the history, the language, the geography, and can serve the French state, right? This is the kind of early Republican idea of public education. I'm not saying that that's the right idea, but that's the idea they have. Sure. Um, so even if you're just going off of that basic idea of creating people who can think, and take part in politics right basic level that's not happening Mm -hmm. and it's just gonna get worse in my opinion because DeSantis and everyone else who's in his camp um have taken these fears and these these feelings of confusion of not knowing what's going on and he's twisted them um And he is just decimating our understanding of what it means to educate a person, you know, like this, this idea of indoctrination that he's so obsessed with, you know, I was looking up the word indoctrinate today. I was looking up the etymology and it just means to put, you know, in means to put something in, right. And you're putting some knowledge into a person. That's what teaching is, right. The person doesn't have that um, information, And you share it with them, right? So actually, even the word indoctrination, which we have such a negative idea of, is just another word for education. Um, So I don't even know if I have an end to that thought besides to say that I'm terrified as a queer woman, as um, a person who has so many beloved non-binary and trans people in my life, Um, as someone who's gender non-conforming in my own life, I... I don't know how we're supposed to just keep going on teaching. Of course we will and we must, but there is so much fear right now about what could happen to us and what's happening to these students. We could teach one day because they're being robbed um, sometimes of their lives by this. And I can't do anything about that student in that state who cannot live in their gender in their school. I, I feel so helpless about that. So this is why I'm saying we need to come together from the very first, the pre-K, all the way up to the highest levels of higher education. We have to start seeing this as a complete picture. And we have to start investing in each other instead of thinking of college as this like separate special thing that you do.
1: So now I, I wonder if that, you know, thinking about this as all, well, I guess I have two thoughts at this point. The first one being, um, as you were, you know, you know, talking about, you know, this, the etymology of the kind of a doctrine and think about education is like, well, what is it that is being conveyed? And there seems to me there's also there's been a hesitant on among academics where, you you know, let's take for kind of a, say like the, the center of the political spectrum over to the left, Right. There's been a, a reluctance in my mind to really fight for a particular model. What is it that we're educating for? Mm. Right. What is the what is other than kind of like, you know, the leaking of the where students are coming to college so that they can get a good job, mm-hmm. like the kind of like economization of the way that we talk about um, higher education as a whole seems to be so problematic because it's given up another discussion, right? The other discussion is like, you know, part of the dual promise in my mind of higher education. Yes, there's always been this kind of, you know, job training part of it. But the other part is like you're training people. Right. To engage critically in that society. And if you're any if you any have any hopes to be a democracy worth its name, you're mm-hmm. training, you're training citizens, you're training people how to be and how to be active and critical and a participant in that kind of world. Mm-hmm. But by giving up that part of the argument, right, by by saying, OK, no, OK, we'll play on the field of like, yes, it's worth it for the jobs and we'll squeeze in our yep. academic work in these and, you know, in this department or in this program we're at a point now where we need to be making these arguments overtly. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the one, you know, look, we need education to save us (laughs) from what is what, from the 40 years of, of neoliberal attack that has been coming after us, not just education, but right across the board on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm thinking about where you kind of end up in this piece in the Chronicle about say, look, That idea, you know, can we work it from the inside? Can we kind of have these minor revisions to this? And you come down and say, no, you know, I know there's going to be the naysayers, the people that are going to say I'm being hyperbolic here and all this. But no, I think we need something. We need a revolution in higher education. And I'm wondering if that vision that you started to sketch out there is kind of that direction that you're thinking about. Is What is it that we need going forward? Um, Mm. you think, and I, and I know that's a lot of the plate right now, so I apologize for that, but
2: it was just making me think about, um, this, this idea that education is what will save us in this moment of extremism. I actually have been thinking a lot about how that that's not entirely true. Um, and that that's actually been a huge problem for us on the left is that we have gone so hard in this direction of, oh, we just need to educate these people. We just need to give them the chance to think critically. One of my best friends is um, very conservative and lives in a conservative state and um, was really invested in academics, went to college, um, studied the classics, did this whole other branch of um, kind of a classical education that was different from mine, but still very rigorous, right? Um, And I was thinking about this because I read Gianna Cadlick's book, Heretic, um, which is really wonderful. And she says that same thing, like, well, look at the people uh, on the Supreme Court. They've been educated. They went to college. They went to elite colleges. And they're using it for crypto-fascism. You know, education alone is not going to fix this. What's going to fix this is you know, any kind of social safety net, any kind of equity or, you know, equality in our society at all, an end to white supremacy, an end to um, just this... What I'm trying to say is you can't... You can't educate your way out of the neoliberal dilemma. You can't educate your way out of a system that is killing some people and letting others thrive. And that, I learned that from the academy, right? Like I learned that from all of my studies. Yes. I have yep. all the words, yep, um, yep, yep. but that only gets us so far, right? So I don't have a solution, but that's what I mean when I say that these, these small fixes are not enough um, because the neoliberal machine is just gonna keep tumbling us around <laughs> and we're going to think that we have a grasp on it when we don't. So I don't know what those structural fixes are. It sounds utopian to some people probably, but they have to happen.
1: Well, you know, I was thinking, you know, I'm even thinking about, uh, it's funny as soon as you said, well, you know, I don't know about that. I was thinking I was kicking myself because I, I remember having, uh, I, I, I put together this uh it was like a t-shirt like that for raging chicken at one point. Right. And it said, um, it said, it said, assemble, agitate, amplify. Mm. And then somebody had said to me, um, somebody said to me, is like, well, educate should be on there. And I said to them at that point, I'm like, education is the last thing I want on this shirt, Mm. (laughs) right? Because is that we've been drilling this into people's heads and I want something that's more focused on, you know, What's not, right, in this? But then I'm also thinking about, you know, I did my in my dissertation work I did in um, uh, looking at, say, social movements, uh, radical educational experiments during the early 20th century in the United mm-hmm. States, right? So looking at everything from these communist schools in the Deep South, right, um, the Commonwealth College, for example, down there, looking at the um, Brookwood Labor College in kind of outside New York, and um, looking at some of the anarchist schools that were being set up in the modern schools and so on like this. And one of the things that was... For a long time, there were, at the Highlander School for Social Research, for example, there mm. were these educational spaces that were not higher education, that were not institutionalized, stamped, you know, here's what you'd get for your degree. But there were these spaces of education in struggle, right? Mm. In resistance, in how do you effectively organize not just a union in your shop. But how do you organize with a community to push back against these particular kinds of developments? And I'm thinking, you know, one of the genius, geniuses of the, of the neoliberal era, right, is to reduce the number of those spaces, mm. right, to have a war on those kind of other spaces of, of non-sanctions education that uh, was training people and how to activate, if that makes sense. You know
2: what's interesting, though? The conservatives are doing it very well. They have their schools. They are brilliant at it. They have their schools where they are telling people how to disrupt and how to, uh, you know, work it so that the votes turn out in their favor because they they can just flip enough people. Right? They are doing so much more work than we are. They are coming together. They are agitating. They are assembling, and they are teaching. And they're doing it better than us. And that's terrifying. And I think, you know, if we're hoping that the university space can be a space of some kind of progressivism, I think we have to remember that the roots of it are patriarchy, white supremacy, and imperialism. And I don't just say that because it's politically correct or it's the, it's the right thing to say. It's just true. And the university just is true. not- <laughs> It's true. The university is not meant to teach people how to care for one another, how to be in community- how to live in a life of justice, how to practice empathy and compassion. That is not what the university teaches. That sometimes happens, but in spite of the university. To have these schools that are, you know, Mount Holyoke is near a very working class community. um, And, you know, mostly we have no connections to that community. Um, So that, that kind of separate spheres problem that the university has, to me, is a feminist problem. Because the institution is built around a patriarchal idea of what it means to be educated. And for me, if we were able to radically reimagine the institution from a feminist and an anti-racist point of view, you would have different kinds of knowledge that would be welcomed. You would have teaching that centers community and compassion and care work. Um, And you would have something that just basically doesn't resemble what we have now if we're really talking about serving a more just society, that's what we would need. You can't just do it with ideas. You can't just do it by reading the books.
1: 100%. And, I'm, and, and I know I'm I'm keeping you longer here, but I got one more question for yes. you. <laughs> and this is, I, I don't, I don't, I, and I suspect that it is another one of these, not, there is no easy answer that we have going on here, but right along the lines of what you're talking about. So I'm almost thinking back to, Specific points of struggle, right? Thinking about whether we're talking about the NYU strike, we're talking about the New School strike. We're seeing this kind of radicalization in some sectors of uh, kind of labor. Of, uh, and I say radicalization, I don't mean they're, they're all the way to the left, <laughs> but I mean radicalization in in the willing the willingness to actually, you know, kind of utilize direct action as a tool, mm. right? To withdraw labor and kind of to put it, you know put a wrench in the gears, at least if it's for, in hopes, I guess, of, of creating some kind of opening where there's other possibilities um, become visible at least. So thinking, I think, to these points of struggle, right, where we have you know active campaigns going on, active strikes that are going on, resistance is happening all over here. Is it, can these moments of struggle contribute to that kind of direction that you're talking about um and again i, I know this mm-hmm. is like i i don't want to lay this at your feet so to speak right because <laughs> you know i hate that move saying well okay here's the problem so give us the easy solution that we can put in a headline and put it and i don't mean it in that way i mean it just kind of as thinking that process through because i think what you're saying is resonates with just like tens of thousands if not millions of people um that yeah. are looking for like ways so
2: <sighs> yeah i mean The first step is we should have a union at every single college and university, right? I mean, that's something, and it's really significant. And the strikes have been so meaningful symbolically, and it's been contagious in this beautiful way. The more that people do it, and the more they survive it, and the more they succeed, the more other people are doing it, you know? And um, I think that's really powerful, and I do think it's somewhere like the new school Uh, It has had this incredible effect of putting people in touch who weren't in touch before, having the tenured faculty talking to the contingent faculty, having people from different departments collaborating, having students really understand the labor of their professors. Um, So I do think that's a way to kind of take down the hierarchy as a first step, take down that idea that some people deserve to be so special and other people don't. Um, and hopefully that will kind of move us in a direction of at least people talking to each other so they can have the information to figure out what they want to do next. Um, and I think a, another thing that has to be considered is the ways in which our institutions are built on a system of policing. I mean, literally, right, with campus police, yeah. um, with urban campuses, somewhere like NYU, you know, working with the NYPD. But I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of grading, that grading is based on the mindset of policing. Oh, you didn't do the work, and I'm going to find out that you didn't do the work, and then I'm going to give you a low grade because you didn't do the work. And this is something I've picked up from people who are doing, you know, the work of uh, universal design and trying to figure out how to make classrooms really accessible. But it's been mind-blowing for me to think of it that way. How are we policing our students? Through grading, how are we policing our students through uh, attendance and financial aid and all these, you know, ways that they have to, they have, their behavior has to be a certain way for them to succeed. It's not actually about their ideas or their effort. Um, so I think as with many other places right now, we have to start peeling back those layers of policing, even just in our daily interactions. And I think when you merge that with the labor uh, energy, I think you get something closer to what we're going to want going forward.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. And uh, so this is a good question from chat that came up here. Then it says, um, kind of referring to what you said earlier. I said, of course, we will go on teaching and learning. And then the question is, should we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we? I mean, is a, should we keep doing it?
2: Uh. Whew. Yes, but I don't think we should keep yeah. doing it in this context. Um, I don't know yet what that looks like. For me, it looks like probably leaving this profession. Um, so I don't think it'll mean that for everybody, but uh, my answer is, is like, no. <laughs> but yeah. there's an and there as well. And the and is we should be teaching. But just maybe not in these contexts. We have to figure out how to spread that on a more human to human level and think of teaching as giving access to resources rather than passing down some kind of knowledge that we that we've earned.
1: I love that. Well, I mean, uh, Hannah, I, I appreciate you coming on tonight so much, and I strongly encourage people to go out and uh, read her piece on uh, The Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, It's called The Academic Career is Broken um, and her piece in Jacobin, uh, which came out just a couple months ago. I love higher education and isn't loving me back. Um, And I'll be frank about my own motivations if people aren't clear about it already, is that uh, I do think that this is the very conversation that we need to be having here. Um, And I'll say this even at a very local level is like while we're gearing up to what may promise to be one of the um, kind of one of the key contract fights and union fights in Pennsylvania's um, state system of higher education's history um, this coming year, after we've had uh, six schools consolidated into two, universities consolidated into two, as we see austerity measures being kind of implemented everywhere, um, that having a question that's part of that fight be under what conditions are we willing to return? And that not just being wages, benefits, and whether or not the mold is still in my freaking building or mm. not. <laughs> but rather, what is the human capacity? What, is the human, what, are the, what are the needs that we need as human beings to do this in the way that it should be? And I do think these two pieces by Hannah are really uh, a great um, places to have that conversation around. So Hannah, I appreciate your work so much. Um, and I appreciate you coming on. Tonight.
2: Thanks so much. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I have plenty of new ideas just from talking through it. So I hope it inspires other people to have conversations <laughs> like this. I think we could use more of it.
1: Well, fantastic. Well, we're going to be, uh, um, basically keeping an eye out for, uh, uh where you go from here and what else is coming out. Uh, make sure to follow, uh, uh, Hannah on Han Leffingwell on Twitter, um, information on that will be in tonight's in show notes, and also check out her pieces. The academic career is broken. Uh, the Chronicle of, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and I love education. It isn't loving me back in Jacobin? Uh, Hannah Leffingwell, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and thank you everybody for in the chat. I apologize that we got a little laggy with uh, kind of on some weird uh, YouTubey uh, internet connection, but the uh, final one will be perfect. I'm glad everyone stuck around until it leveled itself out um, and joined in this conversation. Um, have a great one, Hannah, Thank you. and uh, you know maybe uh, I'll get to join you on the front lines one of these I days. I hope so. <laughs> so. yeah, here we go. All right, this is Kevin Mahoney, uh, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, Want to remind you that we'll be back here next week with Alyssa Bowen, and we're going to be talking about right-wing dark money and their new plan to expand into school boards. Yes, like they haven't done it enough already. We'll be back. We'll see you then. See
0: ya.